All right, folks, the sky is starting to lighten, but the sun has not yet come up, so that tells me I still have time to do a Rish Outcast Euro Trip Edition. Part three? Part four? Part nine, actually. Wow, really? No. Uh, I'm going to try to be brief when it comes to uh, the rest of this, uh, or at least talking about Euro, talking about Disneyland Paris. Try being the operative word. As you know, John, everything always takes longer than you think that it will. I cannot imagine how interminable the edit will be on this episode. But hopefully it's just cutting out long stretches of silence and me looking at the window and saying, oh, it's morning. So we had one of those tickets where you could go from park to park. The first night, all we went on was Phantom Manor. And then I wanted to go to uh, the Indiana Jones ride. Uh, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Peril is, I believe, what they call it. By this point, it was completely dark and it was hard to find the Indiana Jones ride. But when we got there, we found that the sign said that it was a, I think they said 20 minute wait. It might've been 15. And we thought, yeah, we can manage that. And so we got inside the, the line section and just walked all the way through it and out through the other side. There was no line at all, no wait. It was just, you know, a bunch of employees waiting for there to be enough people to fill the cars and then they'd send it on its way, sometimes not even full, but I was hard pressed to understand how this was an Indiana Jones ride. I think that it always was, but it just felt like a traditional roller coaster that somebody had decided to rebrand as an Indiana Jones thing. There wasn't the John Williams music playing. There weren't decorations. There certainly weren't animatronics of Indy like there are in Anaheim. There wasn't John Reese davies playing Sala like there was at the Forbidden Eye ride. What there was, was a, a, an incline and then a quick zoom around the track, an inversion as they call a loop. And then it was over and it was a fairly rough ride. I learned the smart thing to do was to put my head back against the headrest because if I didn't, it would get banged against the headrest and thrown all over. But because there was no line, once we got off it, Jeff said, do you want to go again? And so we went all the way around and I, I understand that he was, you know, injured, but in his defense, he, we went on it three times, all with no line at all. And I probably would have been fine to uh, keep going on it until the park closed, because at this point the park was closing in just a few minutes. We didn't have time to find another ride and stand in the line, but we just did the three times and then they started playing the recordings that it was time to head toward the exits. And when we got to the exits, it was so full. You would not believe how many people were there. They, they were doing the fireworks. They were playing Let It Go in French. And there were a lot of people gathered there. But everybody else was trying to go through the exits. And it was so full that they opened these doors on the side so we could go backstage where the employees go behind all the rides to get out. And uh, there were people that were excited because you're never able to see that unless you're an employee 
But I wasn't excited because it just looked like a back lot with lots of places where people could take their breaks, could eat their lunches, could smoke their cigarettes. And eventually it led out into the, the exit of the park. And so uh, we did go over to the, the, second, the second park, but we didn't ride on any rides. The, the lines were just too long. It was raining. Yeah, there, there were just lots and lots of people there and, and, and we were tired from having another full day. Uh, so eventually we made our way back, walked back to the hotel and Jeff had gone to Disneyland Paris a few times. And when they'd first gone, they'd stayed in like the Cheyenne Hotel, which was uh, almost a mile further down the road. And he talked about just how tired you would be and how bad your legs would ache by the time you, you got there. And so this was much, much nicer that we could just walk out of the shopping district outside of Disneyland. And then right there are the gardens. And then there is, is the hotel. And I thought that that was cool. This was a room... This one had two beds, but they were great big beds. So Jeff and Emily took one and I took another and really only took like the corner of that one bed. But it was very nice and very comfortable and had a, like a, a sliding partition between the toilet and the sink shower area, which I don't know that I've ever seen know. before. And I'm not sure why you would need that unless the, the, the toilet functions uh, are offensive to whoever is using the sink or the shower. They had all sorts of fun stuff on the TV and like activities for kids and free Disney movies and that sort of thing. But we never watched it. Jeff turned it on just to show what it was. But all the time that we were at the hotel, we were either sleeping or, you know, getting ready to go. I did have my laptop out and blogged a little bit until the battery started to die and the outlets in France are not the same as the outlets were in England. In England I had asked if I could borrow an adapter and they gave me a couple because they didn't know what American outlets were like. This one I went down to the lobby the next day and they had a universal adapter which you could plug anything into. And that was great. If I ever go to Europe again, and granted, it's highly unlikely that I will. But if I ever go again, that's something that you get. You should take with you. So you can plug your stuff in no matter what country you're in. Very cool. Oh, okay, so we had paid for breakfast. I thought that the breakfast was complimentary, but when I went down there, because Jeff and Emily had gotten up at 5 and uh, had gone down to the breakfast area at like 6.15 or something like that. Might have been 6.30, I'm not sure. Uh, but I went down there at like 7.30 by myself, and it turned out that it was $28 for breakfast if you didn't have it on your pass. That's, that's, that's a lot of money, kids. My uncle is gone but uh, he used to always want to go to this all-you-can-eat buffet here in town when he was visiting or when he lived here. And I always balked at the price. I was just like, oh, dude, it's so much money. You have to basically like not eat the day before and then come in and just you know eat two days worth to justify that price. But 
That seems like a bargain now compared to the prices I paid in Europe. I probably won't complain again about any of that stuff. But it, the, the breakfast area was, was nice and it was just all you can eat buffet of various kinds of foods. And Jeff and Emily's head said that it was crazy busy when they went. You had to wait for somebody to stand up so that you could take their table. But when I went down there, there were a lot of empty tables and there were employees bustling around looking for something to do. And I, at one point, got up and got some eggs and toast. They had these little waffle-making machines, not waffle, uh, pancake-making machines. And I got that, I went and I sat down and started it and then realized that uh, I didn't have anything to drink. So I got up to get some juice. And by the time I came back, my table had been cleared by one of these guys that was looking for something to do. And I was upset by that because I hadn't finished my food. I just needed something to wash down what I was eating. I had to ask for another fork. Um, but this food was really nice. And again, it was all you could eat. And so I, I just, I stuffed myself. I try, I got cereal also because I didn't want to have to pay insane prices at Disneyland eating, which of course we did anyway. Uh, we got our shoes on, headed over to the Disney park. And this time we went to the movie one because Jeff wanted to go on Twilight Zone Tower of Terror, most of all. And that is a ride that I had ridden on back in Anaheim when the Disney California Adventure first opened. Uh, but as far as I know, it does not exist anywhere anymore. They have changed those into a Guardians of the Galaxy ride. And this is the only one that's kept the Twilight Zone theme. And Jeff loves it. He loves those rides that take you up in the air and drop you. And I feel the opposite. I just, I, I cannot enjoy them. I, I hate them. But I, I was obligated, you know. He had stood in the line for the ride that I wanted to go on. And so I said I would go on this. And I tried to, you know, push down my fear because I thought, you know, how, how bad can it be? Usually those rides, the, the first drop is the big scary part and then you're okay. Uh, this was rougher than any I've ever been on it might, I knew, my brain knew that I was okay, but my body insisted that I was dying, that I was falling to my death, and the flight or fight reflex kicked in, and yeah, it was not pleasant at all, and Jeff said that uh, he could hear me laughing the whole ride through, and so he knew that I liked it, even though I told him I didn't, but I think that that laugh is a compensation tactic that you do when you're really afraid. Uh, we were in that park and they had changed an Aerosmith roller coaster to be Marvel Avengers themed. And we went through the line on that and I, I thought it was neat. But again, the language barrier, Iron Man spoke French and all the alerts were in French, but Friday, his AI spoke English, and Brie Larson as Carol Danvers spoke English. Uh, but they'd have this conversation where one would say something in French and the other would say something in English, and so it didn't make any sense. Um, it was just there to entertain us. 
in the line anyway. But the thing that sucked was that the line went long, 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 and then very, very short on the part where you are meant to be entertained. Like Rocket Raccoon showed up at one point, but we didn't have, we weren't able to watch him because they were pushing us on into the next labyrinth of line. Usually they, they give you that entertainment just right outside where the, the ride begins because they know that's where the line is going to be most concentrated. That was not the case on this ride. <clears throat> it was still probably another 15 to 20 minutes after the entertainment that we got on the ride. And it was fast and it was short and it was, it was fun. And it, the wind was blowing and my, uh, the tears were running down the sides of my face as we were going through it. It, it was cool. Uh, later on, we went on a ride called Hyperspace Mountain that was almost exactly the same thing except for Star Wars themed. And it had also been retrofitted from this really unique ride that had based, been based on the works of Jules Verne. I think it was from the Earth to the Moon kind of thing uh, where it was all just meant to be a 19th century or very, very early 20th century idea of what space travel would be like in the future. So it was basically just us being shot out of a great big cannon but it was, instead of being toward the moon, it was now Star Wars related and you had TIE fighters and X-Wings and, and Star Destroyers and stuff. And, and as much as I love Star Wars and think that it's cool to be on a ride that, that's Star Wars based, I sort of wish that they had just left it its original, very charming theme and built something else for a Star Wars ride. But I get it. I understand why they did it. The same thing for... Tower of Terror being transformed into the Guardians ride. I get why they did it, but you lose something. Especially, you know, Jeff really loves that Tower of Terror ride. And as soon as they decide, okay, it needs to get the boot, which will have, it has to happen. He's going to hate Disney for it. After the Avengers ride, though, we had what ended up being the longest line of the experience. And they had just put it in. The Avengers ride had been built in like March. Uh, but this one had just opened, I think, in September. And it was the Spider-Man web ride. And it had a sign outside that said it was a 40-minute wait. But I don't speak French. And I didn't realize that it was a 40-minute wait if you were a single rider. If you were in a group it was considerably longer and it was all just like industrial concrete gates and shoots and lines and just waiting and waiting and you heard this which is michael giacchino's mcu spider-man theme song playing and it was playing on a loop. And I'd never had a problem with his music. I, I, I quite love Giacchino, his music as a whole. Uh, but I gotta say, by the time we finally got on the ride, I'm not a fan of his Spider-Man theme anymore. If the ride had said that it was a 90 minute wait, we probably wouldn't have gotten in the line. If it had said that it was a two hour wait, we would have been like, oh hell no. 
But if we had known that it was going to be two hours and 40 minutes in this line, yeah, we never even would have considered it. Um, but this ride also had some stuff that was meant to entertain you. And it was all about some stark funded school of technology in New York where international students, a French girl, she was actually a moon girl from Devil Dinosaur, a Wakandan girl, Peter Parker, and Doreen Green, who I knew uh, as Squirrel Girl, uh, were all going to this school and they all were students together. And uh, I thought that that was very clever and they were all live action. They had actresses playing these other characters. I, there might have been another male character, but I can't remember. He, he would have spoken French if, he, if that were the case. And I thought, well, this has to all be tied in to a, a TV show or Disney Plus thing or, or, or something. Uh, but as far as I know, it wasn't. It seemed super elaborate, much more elaborate than the Avengers one. And we stood in line for a long, long time and would read all of the signs that you could read. Half of them were in French. And we were in that line for so long, I, I read the French ones too, translating the, the words that I, that I understood. And then finally we got to the ride and they had one of those uh, projection screens that makes it look like Peter Parker is there with you. And they've gotten Tom Holland to play him. And he's a charming, likable actor with good comic chops. And all of it was lost because they had dubbed him over in French. And to see the translation, the subtitles of what he was saying, you had to look at a screen to your right. So you couldn't watch Peter Parker and what he was doing and understand what he was saying at the same time. That was a bummer. The plot for this, this ride was that there were these little spider nanobots that had been built at this school and they'd given them self-replicating technology and then the machine breaks and they start self-replicating out of control and going all over and start destroying. They get into some PIM particles and so some are growing and uh, the employees want to call the Avengers in and he says, no, 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 let's, let's, we should call Spider-Man. And so they call Spider-Man and, and Peter's cell phone starts vibrating and he has to pretend that he's gonna go get Spider-Man for them. So he switches and he changes and then he asks us to help him to destroy these, these, these Spider-Bots. So we put on these 3D glasses and they give you this very short tutorial in French of how you can thwip webs by doing that thing with your arm, you know, thr thrusting your arms out. And somehow the screens know where you're pointing and what you're doing. So you could throw webs with your left arm and throw webs with your right arm, or you could throw webs together and it was make double webs for things that were really big and powerful. And you could also attach your web line and then yank your arm back and it would know that you're pulling the virtual web and it would knock things over or, or crash nanobots into each other 
it was so intuitive and I'd never seen a ride like this before. In fact, it wasn't really a ride so much as it was a video game. And we were standing with a family, and the family I think had five people in it. Maybe even it was six. But only four people could, could play the game. And so they told the, the father that he would have to ride with us, and he was so incensed, so pissed off. I mean, he spoke French, I didn't. I got the impression that he hadn't wanted to go on the ride in the first place, but his kids had dragged him on it. And so he had had to spend his entire morning and early afternoon in this line, and then they wouldn't even let him sit with his kids. So by gum, he was not going to participate, and he just sat there while the video game went. The, the ride was just, you know, you were in a buggy, and it went from screen to screen, and then it was over. And he sat there with his arms and little fists at his sides, pouting, while the rest of us played the game, and while his family surely played the game in the next buggy. And I would feel sorry for him, except for that I didn't. The video game was amazing. And it would keep track of everybody's scores. And at the end of each level, which was another room, and then the buggy would move on to the next room, which were all just screens that we saw with 3D glasses, it would tell everybody's score, and his score was zero because he was unwilling to even fart to help save this institute and you know protect people from these nanobots. I may be taking it a little bit too personally, but what a waste of this guy's time. All of us spent three hours in line, but this is the only person who spent three hours in line for nothing. Uh, anyway, I, I, I really, really enjoyed this thing. And if, if the line had been reasonable or even long, I would have wanted to get in the line again to play the game again. Uh, but it wasn't. It was unreasonable. It was crazy. And, you know, we'd gone on the Indiana Jones ride and it didn't have any line at all. That would be a dream on this Spider-Man thing, the video game thing. Because it was essentially just the kind of thing where you'd want to put your coins in and play it again. Now that you know how it works and stuff, see if you could beat that high score. Uh, it was very, very fun. Really cool gameplay and realistic. And I've gone way into detail on this because it was the highlight of the, the second day. Uh, we went on a bunch of rides. I don't even want to go through them. You know, Star Tours was really cool. I hadn't been on Star Tours since they refitted that and made it randomized to go to different planets. Uh, we went on Pirates of the Caribbean, and I hadn't been on that since they had refitted it with Johnny Depp stuff. Hyperspace Mountain I mentioned already. There's a Buzz Lightyear ride where you shot these little guns at targets and it sensed whether you were hitting the targets or not. And in some ways, I felt like that was the precursor to the uh, Spider-Man ride that we had gone on, except for the Buzz Lightyear thing was actually a ride and it was more kid-friendly and it was closer to a laser tag kind of thing or a shooting gallery kind of thing where these targets would appear and they would move and something would happen when you would shoot them and you would get points. I, I liked that ride, but it was a bit of a step down from the Spider-Man one. 
you know, I think that that's, that's, I, I'm not going to talk any more about Disneyland. We did go on Phantom Manor again. Please check the last episode for quite a bit of talk about Phantom Manor. But it, it was so cool and so charming and so right up my alley that I was glad that they let me go on it every day that we were there. And we may have gone on a ride or two that I haven't mentioned. The only ride that we didn't end up going on was Big Thunder Mountain. I, well, that's not true. There were lots of rides we didn't go on because they were children's rides or, or we just didn't want to. But Big Thunder Mountain, we wanted to. But it consistently had a big, long line. And so we never managed to go on it. But we got some really cool pictures of it. It was lit up at night. Very pretty. That day was fairly cold and fairly rainy. I think it was the one day that I wore my really wintry sweater that I, I always have at the cabin for when it, you know, it gets cold at the cabin. I'm sure right now it's just miserable cold where I would wear like two or three layers and it's the, you know, the, 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 the one that is the thickest. We, I feel like we were pretty tired by the end of the day and we left before the fireworks were even going off. There's a lot of turn of the century deco there at Paris Disneyland that's all about Coney Island and New York, Ellis Island, the Statue of Liberty, you know, being assembled and being put on display. And there's charm to that. Like I said about the hyperspace mountain being a Jules Verne inspired thing. I got the feeling that when it was first built, big sections of the park were dedicated to that, that turn of the century idea. And that's a romantic time period. You know, it was before World War One, and everything was looking to the future. And, oh boy, you know, all this new technology that was starting to appear, uh, you know, like film and the phonograph and the automobile and the aeroplane, or at least the precursor to it. Yeah, that stuff is really neat. And probably that is not going to appeal to children. And so it's being phased out in favor of louder and more recognizable things. They, they would do these dance parade type things. I, I saw it happen three times, I think, while we were at Disneyland. You know, somebody comes out dressed as Mickey and somebody comes out dressed as Donald. And they, they basically just like disco dance to really ghastly French pop songs that have English in them, but sung with a French accent. So my assumption is that these are native French-speaking pop groups that are popular there. But it seemed super dated as well. It seems like if it had been their opening day in 1992, it felt dated then. I guess I'm not going to say anything more about Disneyland Paris. I was happy to go there, definitely. I know I'll never go there again. There was all sorts of newness and things that were unique and, and charming but there was very rarely any sense of nostalgia there because it was all new and I had no context for most of it. I've never been to Disney World in Orlando and I imagine that it would also feel that way, but maybe not because I believe Disney World opened before I was even born and so there might be moments of nostalgia there. But the Anaheim Park is the one for me because I went there as a very little kid. I was probably three or younger the first time I went to Disneyland. And uh, 
went there as, as a teenager, went there as a 20-something. Uh, a big part of the appeal of those parks is the nostalgia factor. It's thinking about your childhood, and that's how they get you, is, you know, oh, do you remember this from when you were a kid? Nobody remembers the Statue of Liberty coming to New York City from when they were a kid. Anyhow, I'm not sure what to do. I've, I've been recording for quite a bit. We were in France for three days. And the third day, uh, we had a train that we had to catch. And we would have to take the bus to the train station, take the train to the Paris station. And then we were going to get back to Paris to do a tour that we already had tickets for at the ossuary under Paris, the catacombs under Paris. My guess is that that would have been busy the week of Halloween and uh, impossible to get into on Halloween day. But, you know, it ended up being much more morbid than your normal Halloween activity would be. Uh, whereas, as morbid as the Jack the Ripper tour was, there was still a playful sense to it in the way that Halloween is playful. I mean, unless you're a Midwestern Christian conservative Karen, Halloween is innocuous and it is it, it, it tends to have had any sinister aspects, morbid aspects sort of sanitized from it. And uh, going to the ossuary, it was not, uh, there, you couldn't whitewash it. This, this was not for kids. Uh, this was not for everybody. I had mentioned that I wanted to go there because my niece's boyfriend had said of all places that he wanted to go, this was it. And so I had mentioned it, and none of them had been. And so it was a unique experience for all of us. And it was there in the middle of Paris. Paris seemed to be a very big city, unless the train station is way on the outskirts and you have to go across the city to get to these tourist destinations. Emily had asked if I wanted to see the Louvre. We wouldn't have time to go in, but did I want to see the building? And I didn't care. And she had said, well, how about the Eiffel Tower? And I said, well, yeah, I'd, I'd like to see the Eiffel Tower. And she said, we wouldn't have time to go into it, to tour it or anything like that. And Jeff, with his foot, wouldn't be able to do all those thousands of stairs anyway. Although surely there are elevators, right? And I said, no, 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 that's fine. I just, I, I would like to be able to see it, you know, take a picture with it or whatever. If we're there in Paris and you don't see the Eiffel Tower, it seems kind of like, you know, going to Washington, D.C. and you don't see the Capitol or you don't see the big reason for Washington, D.C. And I, I understand that the Eiffel Tower isn't the reason for Paris, but it is the most famous European landmark. And so that was our plan was we had a train ride into Paris. Uh, we had an appointment at the ossuary, and then we had an, a train ride already scheduled to go back to Germany. Uh, and so we were on this timetable. And we got there uh, to Paris, and we, um, we didn't have to do passport control there because you're, you're going from France to France. And then later, we wouldn't have to do passport control from France to Germany because it's all the EU. And so that's great. That saved us a good chunk of time. 
But what lost us a good chunk of time is that we went from the main train station and we got to the metro, which is France's equivalent of the tube, of the underground. And there were way more people on the metro than even were on the underground that day when there was the flooding and there were all the tourists and it was a weekend. More on that in a minute. Uh, we rode the metro and then it would only take us so far. And we had to get off on that and then we had to get on the bus to go to the part of Paris where the catacombs were. And I'm, I'm sure it wasn't far. Nothing in Europe is far. But it was so congested that it took us over an hour to get there on this bus. And there were times when the light would change and the bus would move forward and the light would change again and the bus hadn't gotten to go through the light. There was such traffic congestion and you could see people on bicycles passing us and we went about five miles an hour when we were able to go. But it was interesting to see all the, the sights of the shops that we were passing and the, the people and the buildings. And at one point we went over the Seine and um, I only knew it was the Seine because afterward I asked Emily if that's what it was. And uh, the, the bus had been so full that all three of us were standing together. And you stand until a seat becomes available. And a seat opened up and I let Emily and Jeff sit down. And then eventually another seat opened up, but it was farther away and I sat by myself. And eventually more people sat next to me and I thought that, that was interesting. There was an Asian girl and she had a mask on the whole time. And I uh, had volunteered to stand up and let her boyfriend sit in my seat, but there was a language barrier and um, she declined. Anyway, I'm not sure why I'm telling you so much detail that just things are popping into my head and I, I, I ought to edit them all out, but that's not going to happen. We rode that bus, we got to the stop and there was a, a line of people to do the tour and they wouldn't let us in the line early. So we just had to sit around and wait, uh, which normally is fine, but we, we had a very limited amount of time to sightsee in Paris. And so if we could have gone through the catacombs as soon as we got there we would have had like a whole hour of extra time to do what we wanted to to go places to to eat to drink to be merry briefly the catacombs under paris were mined hundreds of years ago but gosh like so long ago it was pre-france pre-england we're talking about like Roman times. They had dug these tunnels to, to mine, and I'm sure that they took decades to make. But eventually those mines had played themselves out. Is that what they call it? When it no longer gives what you're looking for? And so they'd pretty much been left and abandoned, and Paris was built over them, and Unfortunately, in the 1700s and 1800s, there had been outbreaks of disease that had killed many, many people, and they'd, you know, filled up all the cemeteries. And they, you know, they, they got to the point where they, they were digging mass graves and just filling them with the dead. And then some of these 
tunnels under Paris started to collapse. Maybe there were earthquakes, I'm not sure, but there was a tremendous amount of disease and dead bodies everywhere. They said that the, the smell was so bad, that the corruption was so bad that all the wine went sour in the, in the vineyards, in the vintages, if, if that's the right word. Anyway, somebody somewhere got the idea that we have all of these tunnels underneath the city that are not being used. Let us fill them with all these dead bodies. So they did. And there were so many corpses that they couldn't organize them in any way. They had city workers and church workers bring the, the bones down there and just pile them. And as a way to pass the time or for some kind of artistic purposes, they arranged them where there would just be, let's get all of the femurs and we'll line them together and then we'll put skulls on top of them or we'll decorate, we'll put a skull here and there. And there, there were places where they, they made patterns and piled up hundreds of skulls and thousands of leg bones and they just filled in the sections and they would make plaques, dedicatory plaques as they went. And it goes for miles and miles down there, apparently. I'm not sure because so much of it is locked off. But you can look past the gates that they've built, the fences, and see more of the same, more piles and piles of skeletons. And uh, instead of having tour guides, they had a little tablet-type device, uh, similar to a, a little smartphone kind of device that had the tour installed on it, and you could tell it what language you wanted it to speak in, and then, you know, you put the headphones on, and you could listen to it, and there was a little recording for each waypoint in the catacombs. So there, there, there would be numbers on plaques that you could see, and you were supposed to press number three when you saw the number three plaque. It didn't really work that way because it was dark and it was cold and it was wet. And to get down there, you had to go on these staircases down into the bowels of the earth. It was unlike any place I've ever been. I tried to use, I tried to come up with a comparison, and the best I could come up with was that my grandmother had a fruit cellar, or root cellar is probably what they called it, which was just some cement stairs that go went down into the ground, and it was always cold, and it was always dark. There were no windows. That's what they used before there was a refrigerator. You know what I mean? And then imagine if grandma's root cellar had been a mile deep. So that's, that's what it was, and they had mapped out this section for tours that had been going for I'm not sure how long it, it used to be that like only city officials and the clergy were allowed down there but back in the early 1900s whoever came into power there in France had decided no this is educational this should be opened to the public people should be able, allowed to see this and so they started doing the tours with it 
and there was this big list of rules before you went in there that you were supposed to abide by. One of the rules was that you were supposed to take off your backpack and carry it. And I didn't understand that. Now I'm thinking it's because if you had your backpack on, then you would rub accidentally against some of these bones. And, you know, it's possible that you can knock things down or worse. But you could take as many pictures as you wanted. One of the rules was that you were not supposed to touch any of the bones. But there weren't any, like, fences or gates or bars to prevent you from doing so. They were just right there in front of you. And I had brought my backpack and I had considered posing my little Yo Gabba Gabba stuffed animals there with them. But it felt too irreverent. It felt too sacrilegious to do that. There was a sense of history down there and then also a sense of reverence, I suppose, is the word. You know, anytime that you go into an old church or whatever, there, there is an aura of, or there should be, of reverence. You know, whether it's a sacred place or whether it's just a place for sobriety, that's what it was for. But I did walk through, and I wasn't going to mention this, but I'm going to anyway. There was one section where people had vandalized with spray paint. And so not everybody must feel that it is a sacred place, right? But there was nothing keeping you from touching the bones and the skulls. And in fact, there were some that were in prominent positions that seemed to be greasy. And somebody said that is from all of the oils from the hundreds of or, or more people that have touched it off of their fingers. Uh, and that, that's unsettling. That's disturbing. And yeah, I'll, I'll admit there was a point where I reached over and I touched one of the skulls just because I had been there and I wanted to know. Somebody was going to say, well, could you touch them? And I said, yes, you could, but I didn't. Or somebody would say, well, what did the skulls feel like? And it just felt like rock, cold, smooth rock. Almost none of the skulls had mandibles. There were a couple where they had cemented the mandibles to it, but they didn't last. It didn't look good. But the idea of how many thousands or tens of thousands or more dead bodies were down here with you was very, it was staggering. It was, it reminded you of mortality and it reminded you of how insignificant you were as far as people go, as far as life goes. You know, every single one of these bones had been a living, breathing person who had lived their lives and died. And now here they were with thousands of their brethren piled up on top of them. And this was just the decorative front layer and behind them I'm assuming were all the hand bones and the arm bones and the rib cages and the sternums and the uh, feet bones and all that stuff. You, you didn't see any of those. You only saw the femurs and the skulls. But there were places where they had been put into patterns 
and decorative stacks and triangles and, and stuff like that. So, so weird. But here's the thing. There were places where the skulls were missing from the triangles or from the patterns. There were just empty skull-shaped holes where people had taken them. And I could easily have taken one because there were lots of places where they were just piled and you could just grab and in four seconds you could have one in your bag and zip closed the bag. There was security getting in. You know, they, they wanted to make sure there weren't explosives really or guns or I, I'm not sure. But there was no security getting out. And so maybe the security was there to scan for spray paint cans. But if there had been people, teenagers, because it's not, it's not going to be 50-somethings that are spray-painting down there, guys. If there had been teenagers that went down there with spray cans, why would they not have taken skulls? I didn't take one because, A, it didn't feel right. It felt like a huge sin to do it. Do you know what I mean? A bigger sin than letting Jeff pay for a $40 steak. But also, what would you do with it? How would you get it out? What if you got caught with it? You can't get it through customs back to America, right? Wouldn't somebody stop you and say, what is this? And you say, oh, it's a Halloween decoration. I think there's a difference between a Halloween decoration and a real skull. But anyway, I mean, I wasn't even tempted to take one. Uh, when my brother, brother-in-law, when my niece's boyfriend asks me, I'll say, well, you know, I, it would be interesting. Not everybody has a human skull, but it felt wrong. You know, there, there were kids down there and there were people laughing and there were uh, some pretty girls babbling in, in German to each other. And, you know, everybody was there to be entertained. But at the same time, there was also a sober sense of speak a little bit more softly, laugh a little bit more quietly, don't make that particular joke kind of thing. It wasn't a scary place, but it was a somber place of the dead. The coldness helped the lack of light. It, it was not bright in there. there. There was electricity, there were light bulbs, but they weren't everywhere. So there were plenty of shadows. There were a couple of times when I would have to use my flash bulb to get a good picture of the bones. But there was not a bad smell. And that was the thing that shocked me the most. Because I don't know about you, but I... I don't know. Uh, equate death with the smell of rot, with that horrible stink of dead animal, dead person, I guess. And that was all gone because of the amount of time that these bodies had been there, the amount of time that people had been dead. And there were all sorts of corridors through the catacombs that were blocked off that were not part of the tour, where only students or scientists or whatever you would call them were allowed to go, but they were cataloging the bones. There had been some where they had done 
studies, you know, put them in machines or whatever and scanned and tried to determine what somebody would have looked like, you know, just for the lucky skulls that they found and said, okay, we're going to remove this one for this. And they had sections that, you know, had dates on them. All of it was in French or Latin. There was no, no English at all, which is fine. But there would be plaques saying, you know, when the things had been moved down there and, and who was involved. And then there would be inspirational quotes. And it seems like there was one where it was in French and then underneath it. No, no. What it was, was that there was a quote from English, from like an English writer. And so it had the quote in English and then underneath it, it had the French translation. But all the rest were in French. Anyway, I found that place unusual and unique and different from anything that I've experienced. And my guess is anything you've experienced too, unless you've been there. But I'm not sure how fun it was. I'm not sure that you would ever want to go again. And, and like the Jack the Ripper tour, it's not for everybody. That, that would not be what most people would consider entertainment, I, I wouldn't think. But the recordings, telling the history and anecdotes and little bits and bobs was fascinating. And there had been a section before you went down into the catacombs that told the whole history. And I wish that I had stuck around to read that. You know, if, if they had let us in before our appointment, we could have read through all of that because it was really interesting. It was the thing where they were talking about the, the dead being so numerous that it, it turned the wine sour. Um, those are the kind of stories I live for, guys. And there were multiple panels that were all recently installed that had French and English and German and Spanish. I think those were the four, but it might have also had Italian on there and you could just read it in your language and it would talk about what was down there and, and how it had been done and how it had been made initially and the modern stuff where the, with the technology to study these bones. And they said, you know, that they were able to study the teeth and find out about the diet of these people and, and, and try and determine the causes of death just from the skulls. That stuff is fascinating, dude. I don't know if you call that archeology span or, or what you call that. But that, that stuff is really, really cool. Anyhow, we finally emerged into the, the light. It was not a long tour as far as, as if you just went from the audio. The audio was probably 20 minutes, 25 minutes long. But it was in chapters, and so I'm not sure how long it was. But there was a lot more of us wandering around through there. And we did take some pictures. I think I have more pictures of it than anything, except for maybe... No, I even have more pictures of the ossuary than I did of Venice, because I ran out of space on my phone when I was in Venice. But we came out and we made our way to the train station. We went on the train station to where the Eiffel Tower is. And we did spend a few minutes as the sun was going down. And there were so many people selling junk to tourists, you know, like little model Eiffel Towers, light up Eiffel Towers, keychains. 
you know, hats and shirts and berets and food. And at the ossuary, there was memorabilia as well. And I did buy a like ski hat, snow winter cap, toque type thing. And I got a second one for my niece's boyfriend. Just because at this point on the trip, I had spent so little money on souvenirs that I had gotten my niece a t-shirt for the Jack the Ripper tour. And they'd had two options. One was a man with a top hat and a, a blade. And then the other was, you know, a man with a top hat and a woman with her throat slit in his arms, which, yeah, seemed like something that you wouldn't wear much in mixed company. Anyway, I bought a couple of those things there. And at the Eiffel Tower, I didn't buy anything. We got there just as the sun was going down, and there, there were so many tourists there taking pictures. But there's this huge park. It's like a public park right next to the Eiffel Tower, and it's there for people to bring picnic supplies and just socialize, to drink wine and to probably have intercourse. I'm sure it happens. Apparently, Paris is the most romantic city in the world, right? Or at least that's what the brochures say. I took a bunch of pictures of the tower itself, but I was never tempted to go up inside it. And there were some places where they were restoring it with, and it was covered in tarps and things like that. But at one point while I was looking at it, the lights all came on and that was neat because there are tons of lights in the Eiffel Tower. And it was close enough to a metro station that we were able to walk back. We had to get back because of the train to Germany. You know, if you missed it, that was it for the day, at least for the rest of the day. And so we had to go back to the metro station. And it was so full that there would just be masses of people standing outside the doors of the metro. And when the doors would open... A couple of people would get off and a bunch of people would push in to fill that spot made by the couple of people that had gotten off. And I have never been in a place this congested before. The experience was unlike anything except for the worst times of San Diego Comic-Con when you're all shoved together in there. You know, there's no room to breathe. There's no room to move. In San Diego, I guess, you know, it's it's hot, it's July, and people smell bad, and we're all fat. And so it's worse than the Paris metro station was. But the trains come every two minutes. And so we just kept inching our way closer to the doors. And there would be people that would just push their way through. And it's like, I don't care if all of you have been here in front of me. I'm going on. And... In a way, I admired those people because they are the winners in life, the people that don't wait their turn, that say, I am more important than you. But at the same time, I hate those people. Don't you hate those people? I am those people, but yes. When we finally got on, it was because we had chosen to get on. There wasn't enough room for three of us. There was probably room for one person. Finally, it was just like, you know what? We're just going to have to shove in. Now you're speaking my language. And hope that they make room for us because that's what all the other trains that we had not gotten on, had the people had done. 
And so we shoved in there, shoved Keep going. in so tight that it was ridiculous. That it was Now it's getting interesting. It, it was something out of a cartoon, out of a clown car in a circus. And at one point... You farted. I was pushed in there, like pressed up against strangers. And this guy and his girlfriend had got on. And they pressed up against each other face to face like it was the last dance on the junior prom and they were going to take full advantage of it the 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 way these two pressed up against each other it was like two steps beyond intimate there's probably a word for it that's all right they know the word but i was jealous of that i was just like wow the rest of us are like uncomfortably pressed up against strangers but you two are not strangers and you're taking full advantage of it. That was neat. Anyway, uh, it, it, it was laughable how full the Metro was and that every single stop, there were people that needed to get off. Stop it. And you'd just have to push your way through. Now you're doing it on purpose. And then let those people off and then as many people as could possibly fit got on at the next stop. It was crazy. And luckily people didn't smell bad and and they weren't all sweaty. And and it just, it was a reminder of humanity, just like the dead under the city, this, this train with tons of strangers and you're all sharing the same space reminded me that we are all in this together that we depend on one another, human beings are social creatures, and that there are a lot of us. It was not an unpleasant experience, even though it should have been with this many people and this many strangers. And at one point, Jeff and I got separated, and I couldn't reach into my pocket to pull my cell phone out to text him to ask him what our stop was because we were so jammed in there so tightly and once we got to a stop and and it loosened up a little bit so that people could get off i was able to reach into my pocket and pull out my phone and text which stop is it and send it to him before it refilled up again from the people at that stop and he didn't text me back he never texted me back it's still the last text that i sent him on my phone twice which stop is it he never texted back and maybe it's because he couldn't feel that or he couldn't get his phone out if he wanted to Uh, eventually he found where i was just by looking and he mouthed three more stops then two more stops then one more stop so i was able to get out and he was able to get out at the correct stop really fun in a way which you would not think it was fun in a uh, in something that you wouldn't want to experience again, but I did, and I made it through. And you know, what are you going to say? Uh, we got to the main train station, and then found out that everything was delayed, not just to Germany, but all the trains were delayed, and I didn't know why, because I don't speak French, and I. Uh, I can't, I don't, I, I'm, I'm not sure what happened. 
It could have been an act of terrorism. It could have been a crash. It could have been flooding. It could have been that it was tourist season. And it could have been mechanical error. It could have been that the train people were on strike. But I, I didn't know because I didn't speak the language. And so we were at that train station and there was no place to sit. You had to stand. And so eventually what we did was we went over to the nearest seats and we stood behind them and waited. And as the trains, they, they, they did arrive, they were just all late. As the trains started to arrive, a person here or there would stand up and go to get on it. And so I would throw my bag on that seat. I did it on the first one so that Jeff could sit there. And then the second one opened up so that Emily could sit there. And then on the third, I sat there. Then we just had to wait for our train, which was very late at this point. And Jeff and Emily were worried that we wouldn't be able to get our train to Stuttgart. What would we do if we missed it? We had given ourselves plenty of time, but that window was closing. So we just waited, and I was confused, and I was sitting by myself. And uh, there was a dude, a businessman, who was sitting next to me, and he got up and said to me, And I, I figured I understood, you need to make a phone call, make sure nobody sits here. He got up to make a phone call and he walked away. But instead of putting his bag on the seat, he left his bag on the floor. And so a lady came up to me and she said, I'm paraphrasing, and I said, I, I, I'm sorry, there's a man sitting here. And she walked away. And then another, a guy came up and he said something else, which was just, hey, is somebody sitting there? And I I, I nodded and pointed, and then I grabbed the guy's bag and I put it on the seat because I didn't want strangers to keep coming up to me speaking in a language I don't speak and me having to explain, yes, there is somebody sitting there, but he's off making a phone call. Anyway, the guy came back and he looked at the bag and then he looked at me. And I don't speak French, but that look said, asshole, why are you touching my bags? Um, my niece asked, are people in France rude. And for the most part, no, they weren't. But this guy was a fudgin jagoff. He took his bag off the seat and put it on the floor again. And then instead of sitting down, he went off to make another phone call. It's possible that he interrupted his phone call to come over to take the bag off the seat. Anyhow, he went off to do that. And we were all tired and we were grouchy and I didn't speak the language and we were ready to go. And we couldn't because of whatever was wrong with all the trains. And the guy came back because I had done it again. I had put the bag back on the seat because I didn't want people. And, and there would be people that would tap me and I would just shake my head. But the guy came back a second time and he took the bag off and he put it on the floor. And this time he did sit down on it. And a minute later, his phone rang. And I thought, you know, if he goes. So, so the second time he said something to me in French. And I'm sure it was, would you not touch my bag? Or why are you touching my bag? 
you know, or I put my bag on the floor, leave the bag on the floor. I don't know what he said. Pee-wee? I don't know! But I didn't speak French, and he was castigating me for touching his bag. So the third time that he left, I thought if he comes back here again to give me a hard time about his bag, I'm just going to throw his bag out into the bus station and let whoever wants to sit here, sit here. Maybe you understand. Anyhow, eventually our train did come. Emily was a little bit worried about that we weren't going to make our connecting train back to Stuttgart. She says it's going to be really tight, but it didn't end up being really tight because the, the train in Germany from, I can't remember the name of the city. It was like Mannheim or it might've been from Munich. It was delayed because there had been a fire on the tracks. This was said in German over the intercom, and Emily speaks German, and so she told me that that was what had happened. Uh, so we ended up being there at the train station waiting for our train to Stuttgart for a long time. And there was an elderly Asian lady who had gotten off the same train as us from Paris, and she didn't speak German, but she did speak English. And so I spoke to her for a while and she was on a train to Berlin. And so luckily Emily spoke both English and German and was able to tell her where to go. And it turned out it was the same depot station that our train was going to Stuttgart from. But our train was coming about 20 minutes before the train to Berlin. And so Emily had explained this to the lady but our train got delayed and it, it kept getting delayed. And this is something that I noticed in Germany over and over again is that they would say that a train has been delayed, you know, seven minutes or five minutes or 10 minutes. And they would say, this is the new projected time of arrival. And it was never right. And they'd say, you know, the train has been delayed 10 minutes and the new projected time of arrival is 25 minutes in the future. Uh, is 30 minutes in the future, is 40 minutes in the future, is an hour in the future. Anyway, uh, they made an announcement that our, our train was still delayed because the, of the fire. And so the train to Berlin was going to arrive first. Eventually it did show up and I said to Emily, hey, should we go find that lady and make sure that she got on this train? And Emily is like, oh, geez, you're right. And so we went and the lady was still sitting waiting because we had told her that there is a train and that one's going to Stuttgart. We're going to get on it. And the next train after that is yours. And she had understood that, taken it to heart. But she didn't understand the announcements that were in German over the intercom. So she didn't know that she was about to miss her train, but we got her on it in time. And again, I felt like I was useful there, like we are all part of the same species. You know, there was that girl that I told you about years ago that just absolutely hated that aspect about my personality to the point where we had, I, I'm not sure that we had been dating, but we'd been going places together and we were friends. And then she slammed the brakes on that and wouldn't even 
talk to me anymore. But that tendency of caring about other people helped me get that lady on the train, which was really cool. And then they made another announcement, and I don't speak German, but Emily did, and it was, they have moved the train to Stuttgart to another station, and it will be arriving in five minutes. So everybody scrambled to get to this other platform, not station, but platform. And when we got there, the, the train to Stuttgart had just pulled in, and we barely made it. Even with how long the delay was, that's how the trains run in Europe is, you know, we've got a schedule to keep. Even if we're late, we're only going to be in the station for uh, five minutes and then we're gone. Anyway, we had to wear our masks on the, those trains and, and that's, that's fine. That one got us back to Stuttgart. But by this point, we were late and Jeff was thinking, wow, we're going to have to take a taxi because I don't know that the, that one doesn't count. The buses are still running at this hour. Luckily, there were still buses running. They were just like a half hour apart. But we got there, and it was after 2 a.m. Then we had to walk all the way around to where the buses go from the train terminal. We were able to get on the 2.30 bus back to Jeff's stop and then walk the two blocks to their apartment. And everybody was really exhausted and... Uh, I think it was the only time that Jeff and Emily slept in past six o'clock. I slept really, really well that night. Let's see, how long have I been going? The sun is fully up now. We had set aside a couple of days to, I think Jeff called it them days to decompress, where we didn't really have anything on the schedule and we could just sleep and eat and watch television and at one point, Emily complained because I think that day we didn't leave the apartment at all, not even to do the walk around the block that Emily likes to do before they go to bed. She says, you know, that's all that you guys have done today is watch television. And Jeff says, well, that's what he came here for. And I felt that that was strange. I, I hadn't thought that that's what I had come here for. But I think Jeff meant it as the two of us are doing something together. And it doesn't matter if we're just sitting around. We watched this show that Jeff is a huge fan of called Detectorists. And the first season of the show made me so sad. Just miserable sad. Sadder than seeing all these dead bodies had in the catacombs. But he made me watch all of it. There were three seasons. And by the end, no, I, I wasn't sad anymore. I, I quite enjoyed it. And then I made him watch this show called Severance because it's a Apple Plus show and I don't have Apple Plus or Apple TV Plus. And we watched all of that. We enjoyed that. We watched a couple of movies and uh, we started watching this Hulu show called Reboot. Like I said, it was just hours and hours of sitting around watching television, but we kind of needed it after the amount of events, of activities that we had been on. Does that make sense? And Emily makes really, really good food. She's a good cook, and she seems to enjoy cooking. She would make, like, lasagna one day. She made burritos one day. She made pizza one day. And her pizza is so good that I, I guess people in, in town know her for it, and they will ask her to make pizza for them. 
they will offer her money to make her pizza. And, and I think that that's great. That's so cool. She had made breaded chicken and fries one time. It was just really good. And I, I, I think that they had specifically chosen foods that I would like. You know, if there was something that I was not a fan of, it was not on the menu for the week that I was there. And so, boy, I appreciated that. And I drank so many Coke Zeros, something that is not unique to Europe, but is unique in my experience is that they would charge you uh, a fee for every plastic bottle or can or glass bottle that you would buy but then you could bring them to the grocery store and they had a little machine you could feed them in and you get 25 cents for each one. And so I said, oh, I want to do this. Let's, let's make a trip to the, the grocery store and we'll feed these into the machine. And so we did. And Jeff got like six and a half euros for it. I thought that was really interesting and really fun. And they did do that in Los Angeles, but they don't do it around here and nobody does it as efficiently as these people in Europe do. They're really big on recycling. You know, there's all sorts of receptacles and it tells you what to put in each one and what not to. And I, I like that. I can hear that my nephews are up already. And so the entire night is done, is gone. And I'm, I'm not even close to tired. So weird. But I, I am tired of talking and I feel like you've got to be tired of listening to me talk. And so, yeah, I'm sorry, we're gonna do another one of these Eurotrip episodes. And I'll try and get everything that is remaining into it. But hopefully this was interesting for you. And if so, feel free to support me on Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash Outfield. And I try and give the Patreon supporters a little bit of extra in every show. Anyhow, I'm going to um, call it a morning, and I will talk to you later, sometime, probably, in the wee hours of the morning when I am unable to sleep. And I hope that you have enjoyed this, as usual. I hope that uh, you feel that you have come with me on my once-in-a-lifetime journey, and uh, that the company is good. Good night. This is fake Sean Connery. And you can support me and the boy over at patreon.com. Encourage us to put out more shows by donating a dollar an episode. Or more if you've got more money than cents. Which, I suppose, some people have. And that's it for the Rish Outcast, which is produced under a Creative Commons 3.0 Attribution No Derivatives License, which means Rish owns it, unless you stole it, and it's free of charge, unless you paid for it, and Rish has been lying all this time. <laughs> the music in the show was by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, also under a Creative Commons license. Special thanks to Gino the Divino Moretto for the logo he designed for this podcast. Please see it in your heart to forgive him. Don't you understand, oh my little girl?
All I ever wanted, all I ever needed, is here in my arms. Words are very unnecessary. They can only do harm. Here's a little outtake for you first. I had wanted to get like a shirt or a, a sweatshirt or a hat that said the Phantom Manor on it. Because that was the ride that I was most excited about. And they, they had almost no merchandise at all with Phantom Manor. There was a, a, a shirt that you could get that had a very cartoony, like Charles Adams-inspired depiction of the building. And then it said Phantom Manor there at the bottom. But that's not what I wanted. And I certainly didn't want to pay Disney prices for it. And so when we got home, I did look on eBay. And there are shirts and, and things that you can get but they are from like previous years, I guess. And they're insanely expensive because there hasn't been a lot of Phantom Manor <laughs> merchandise. It's much wiser for Disney to merchandise the Haunted Mansion because I think Tokyo has one. I know Orlando has one and uh, Anaheim has one. And so there's tons of Haunted Mansion stuff. But as far as Phantom Manor goes, it's a very niche attraction. And, and so that's too bad. On with the countdown. <laughs> 